years. And we did pretty good. Now, we've done one verse uh, each week for the last two weeks, so we're all the way up verse 3 now. But you might think that's going kind of slow, but when you see how dense this material is, Hebrews is dense. One sentence may have ten important theological ideas in it, at least in this beginning part of the book of Hebrews. So, and that's also true, but the verse 3 that we have to look at today has a lot, excuse me, a lot of very dense theology in it, and we'll have plenty to talk about. But it says, and I'm going to start with verse 1 and read through verse 4 so we get the context. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power when he had made purification of sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they so uh Verse 3 is an amazing passage, and some of the Greek words used there are very, how would you say it, technical. And there's a bunch of words here that, that are of significance. The word radiance, we need to talk about that. What, why is that word chosen what, uh, in the Greek? Uh, the word exact representation is very important. This, this verse has an awful lot to do with the doctrine of Christ, which is the subject, for example, of the Nicene Creed, this verse informs some of the early creeds of the church about who Jesus is and what's his relationship to the Father and what is that relationship from all eternity. Is Jesus Christ one in essence with God, which is what the creeds say? Is Jesus Christ uh, God from all eternity or did he become God at some point? Well, the doctrine is that he, he has always been God. And exactly how does he express the nature of the Father in his incarnation? That also is the subject here. And what relationship does Christ have now after the ascension to God? That's also here in this one verse. So you can see that some of the most important and profound doctrines of the Christian church are represented in this one sentence in very fluent and brilliant Greek uh, use of the Greek language. We need to know about the, the whole, okay, ta panta, the, the whole, y'all, ta panta, y'all, yeah. Ta panta, the all in Greek. In Greek. Sorry. Aren't you going to the class? Oh, you dropped out. Well, see, no wonder you don't know what you do. Of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. 
When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's talk about, first of all, the radiance of his glory. Brightness. Brightness? On this one, I am. Do you have a King James? Well, um, I'm going to have to do some quotes of scholars who know more than I do about these things to help clarify. The reason this word radiance is chosen is that it's important to distinguish the persons of the Trinity, but the unity in essence. The word radiance, some have described it as being like the rays of the sun's relationship to the sun, if you think of being one in essence. Not something that would be uh, separate from, but yet, uh, let me find the quote I have. I was going to quote Linsky on this one. 37. He is a word that we don't generally use. Linsky does. He used the word effulgence. Effulgence, E-F-F-U-L-G-E-N-C-E. Here's what Lenski says. As the effulgence of God's glory, the, the Son is God in essence and has every divine attribute, yet not in the light to which no man can approach, but which no man, which no man has seen or can see, 1 Timothy 6, 16, but in the light that we are to see, John 1, 4, and 5. So um, maybe somebody should look that one up. Um, start over here. Pete, did you look up 1 Timothy 6, 16? We're saying what was hidden, the glory that was hidden that we can approach was also a glory in Christ that yeah. we can approach. It's the, it, it's the same glory in essence, but in Christ it's approachable, whereas... In God's ultimate essence, we would not be able to be in His presence without dying. And that's, that's where this word is expressing this truth of, of Christ bearing the very nature of the Father. And in fact, John says, We beheld His glory. Right? But yet, in other places, it says, you can't, No man can see God and live. So that one's 1 Timothy 6 um, 16. Who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Okay, so who, who no man has seen or can see. And so it's an in, interesting word choice here of the author of Hebrews of using a word that would be the radiance of God's glory in the sun who is God in essence, but yet was seen. And which John says in John 1 and in 1 John 1. So, in a sense that the illustration I heard at seminary about this, or maybe at Bible college, is the sun. You could not approach the sun, I mean our sun of our solar system, because you would just vaporize. But yet the light of the sun shines upon the earth. Right? And so in, in a sense that the, the Son of God is the radiance of His glory, but yet it's approachable light. That moved the cameras of the air, that people's ears actually objectively never spoken. So, 
while we condemn the Holy Spirit to give us impressions from time to time, Jesus gave us his words in a way that was tangible, objective, and honorable. Gave us God's uh, words directly, and in the same way, he embodied his character where we can't see his spirit. It's like Jesus, and you can see his character. Yeah, John makes a really important, uh, really emphasized that at first, John, the objective nature of Jesus Christ, because there were these Gnostics who were denying it. Because the, the many Greek thinkers thought the material world was inherently evil and was the root of all evil, and so that a, 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 a bodily, bodily present Jesus who was real and material would, to them would be bad. So John corrects that there. There's no more... There's no more glory in essence than Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. So by seeing him, we have seen the Father in, in the essence of who he is. Yeah, well, that, I don't think you can improve on the statement. He's one in essence with the Father. Okay? That's, some of these terms in here actually showed up in the Nicene Creed from Hebrews. Hypostasis, for example, one we're going to talk about in a moment here. Well, First John one one through about three or four, because it says that which we've seen, that which we touched, that which we handled. Immediately, once the readers know Jesus wasn't a phantom or a spirit, he was he had a real physical body. And when he was raised from the dead, it was important that we know it was a real physical body that came out of that grave. Same with Moses; he spoke to God face to face in his essence. But yet he asked to see him in his glory, and God said, No man can see me, my glory yeah. up, but I will walk by, put you in the top of the rock, put my hand up, and you'll see my back, and he was radiant. Right. And when he when he did whatever he did see he ended up on his face and worshiping. <laughs> the same thing happened in Revelation, by the way, with John. When he saw the glory of Christ, he ended up worshiping. So um beautiful doctrine here. So it says he is the radiance of his glory, and the exact representation. Um, this is the only time this word is used in the New Testament, this Greek word for exact representation. Basically sounds like our word character, but it would be an imprint or it would be, let me see, I had a quote on that one too. I got so many notes on this verse, I don't have much room in here. Well, I'm not finding my quote here. I didn't mark it out clearly enough. Did you notice that when we see an eclipse of the sun, you it's totally eclipsed, but we still see the rays? Yeah, did anybody else see that yesterday? I went out and saw the... Uh, we were out visiting Tom and Renee Wheeler. But the eclipse of the moon, and the moon is a reflection yeah. of the sun, there aren't any rays. Right. It doesn't have any to give. So God... Jesus is of his very nature. It's not reflected. 
And so that's why this word radiance is really probably a good translation, because that's what the sun is like. It's not more than the brightness. Yeah, it's it's, it's very essence. I finally found that Lane quote, William, uh, William Lane. In verse 3a, he used the word character to convey as emphatically as he could his conviction that Jesus Christ, that in Jesus Christ there had been provided a perfect, visible expression of the reality of God. Um, if, if the formulation of 3a owes something to the vocabulary concepts of Alexandrian Judaism, has been thoroughly assimilated and refashioned by a distinctively Christian thinker. A lot of these scholars spend all their time trying to figure out where all these terminology came from, and they find Philo and use this term and this person and that person. But what he's saying is that this is a term that would indicate just how perfect Christ is as an expression of God. And it says, so he's an exact representation. Of, you know, verses like this are the reason I use the New American Standard Bible, it's amazing. I've been using this New American Standard since 1978. It's amazing to me how often when I do research into the original language and all the possible translations are explained, when I go look at my New American Standard, it's using the best one. It, it's just such a good um, expression of the Greek into English. But you can use any Bible you want. I'm just telling you which, why I prefer the one that I preach from. I just find it excellent. Both in the, in, for instance, in this verse, with difficult Greek, radiance is probably the best English word that we have to explain that first one. An exact representation is probably the best way to explain the next word. And both of them are coming right out of the New American Standard here. The exact representation of his nature. Now, here's another word, hypostasis. This is a word that's used later in Hebrews where it says, faith is the substance of things not seen, hypostasis, understanding or under, uh, having a foundation under. And um, this, again, that, this word shows up in the Nicene Creed. When you hear non-Trinitarians rebuking the doctrine of the Trinity, have you ever debated with these people that Jesus only Pentecostals, for instance? If you go out to St. Paul, they have this Apostolic Bible Institute. They reject the Trinity and they say it's an Antichrist doctrine. And we have a videotape of um, Walter Martin debating those guys on a John Angerberg show. Good education to watch that videotape. That's a good debate. But they will say that the Trinity is an expression of unbiblical Greek substance theory. Right? And they're referring to the fact that the Nicene Creed uses this term, hypostasis. And they say that's just substance theory, it's Greek philosophy. But they ignore the fact that the book of Hebrews uses the same term to describe Christ. Yes? What's the link between the Well, that, that um, remains to be seen when we look at Hebrews 11. I'm just saying it's the same word. The same word as the substance. Yeah, substance is the link, yes. This is a little deal, but if you've got a God that can't be approached on a third or whatever, and then he's going to express himself in a limited vehicle, which is something flesh and blood, and call it exact nature. Yeah. And then it's going to be perceived by reading the method 
and um, but all of that happens in history and in, in the universe. So all the things that transpire are held together by God through the person of Jesus Christ. And now upholding all things by the word of his power shows that the whole universe is sustained and brought to its ordained purposes by his omnipotent power. Yes. Does that mean that there's a rebellion that Satan is able to see that that's not what he had same thing with Adam rebelled against God mm-hmm. and the wages thereof are death and Satan's going to end up and death is going to be put into hell but in the meantime God's being patient is that a reference to in the meantime God's being patient with everything because Christ exists and He's taken our sins and because there's hope in Him and that it's all going to culminate in Him, that because He exists, everything else can be allowed to be patient with Yeah, That's sort of implied in that. In fact, it's even stronger than that. The irony of this, of Him upholding all things of the word of His power, that He holds the universe together, keeps, by well, I was studying subatomic physics at Iowa State University. Not a pleasant thing to do, by the way. Um, that was the most miserable class I was ever in in my life. We were writing paid, huge formulas for things we didn't even know existed. I kind of couldn't see the point of it. Um, using these differential calculus. My mom found a bunch of my old papers from Iowa State a few years ago and brought them up. My wife subsequently threw them all away. But I uh, wish I wouldn't have done, but anyhow, you know, that can be. She likes cleanliness. I like stuff. So anyhow, before the stuff got thrown away, I pulled out my notebook from that class of uh, physical chemistry, they call it. It sounds kind of unauspicious, but don't let it fool you. It'll kill you. If you want want your brain to hurt, go take physical chemistry. So I had these pages of differential calculus stuff that I'd done, and it looked totally like hieroglyphics. Twenty years later, I go, I can't believe I did this. And I look at that, and all that is trying to figure out, you know, where the electron is going to be in its orbit, given quantum mechanics and all this stuff. But I remember after I became a Christian, right after I took that class, it wasn't too long after that I became a Christian the next quarter, I remember one of the things that they were trying to explain was why the nucleus of an atom holds together when you have these protons that repel each other. And what kind, what sort of force overcomes the fact that these things should be repelled? And so they have this series about quarks and this and that and the other thing. But when I became a Christian, and I've read this Hebrews, in fact, the first year I was a Christian, I read through Hebrews, and I thought, he upholds all things with the word of his power, and it says that the order of the universe, all the way down to the subatomic level is held together by God's power. Now, it's not that he doesn't use means that can be seen and understood through physics, but our ultimately, our ability to try to describe the nature of the universe comes to a finite end. And, and where our faith begins is that he upholds all things through the word of his power. And I take that to mean that if he quit doing so, the whole world would go back to where it was before Genesis 1-1. Formless and void. There would be utter, utter chaos. 
And so, Keith's comment about the wicked. Here's, here's something that shows God's mercy in that. God wouldn't have to do much to destroy the wicked. He wouldn't have to do much to destroy the whole world. He'd just have to quit holding it together. Just take your, just remove your hand, just even morally. If you look at um, this restrainer who's, who's removed, he who restrains is removed, and then the, the lawless one is revealed, Antichrist, all God has to do is just withdraw, just quit holding it together. Quit restraining, even morally, quit restraining evil. Quit restraining evil by giving us civil governments to put people in jail. Quit restraining evil by having Christians around as light and salt to say no, you know, and to, to make it harder for the wicked to do what they want to do. Um, and the whole place would go to moral chaos. Okay, well, then if you think on the physical level of God holding together, uh, look at the earth's vulnerability as we are coursing our way through the universe. How many um, asteroids are out there floating around that could destroy life on planet Earth if one of them hit us? Interesting, as uh, the technology gets greater for things like microgenetics, you'll see a lot more secular scientists now fall away from you know Darwin and now looking at intelligent design as secular. Yes, and it's the deeper that they dig into this kind of uh, thing, you, you'll see more of, of God. In that. That's actually happening that they hate Darwin's black box. I have something. I, I don't know how to get it to the congregation because it came by email. But on November 15th, is that right, Dick? Next Saturday. Next Saturday, um, uh, the McLaurin Institute, I know these guys, Mazma and uh, Bob Osborne over there, they're CIC readers, is hosting a one day symposium on intelligent design with a whole host of scientists. And I, the reason I found out about it was one of our CAC readers, Kurt Wagner, who has a PhD in physics, sent me that he's going to be one of the workshop speakers. So Kurt Wagner from Marshall, um, Bay is going to be there, the guy who wrote Darwin's Black Box. And it's going to be at the U. And I have a printout of my email. I'll, I'll announce it during the announcement times, and I'll, I'll have that available if you want to go to that. I think, Dick, are you talking about going? He's thinking about it. Well, somebody you can join Dick and talk him into it. What's that? I could send a link out to everybody, I think. Uh, intelligent design is the main thing. Yeah. It's an organization that supports the idea of intelligent design. So they brought scientists, and all these scientists don't agree with each other on the details. Kurt Wagner in his email to me said he's the only one that he knows that's young earth. But on the other, see the real underlying issue is whether there's a creator. The details, I'm willing to let people who know more than me debate that. But Kurt Wagner is a very brilliant uh, physicist and he's uh, going to be speaking in one of the workshops. So, about one comment. The reason for my hesitation. I really hate this subject. Creationism versus evolution, that whole thing. I've never seen one that ended up going nowhere more than that discussion, generally speaking. But I thought if there's one place that on one day 
that they're going to cover most of the bases that are the questions. This is it. That's what I thought. And maybe it's worth doing one day. If you're interested in a topic, I'd recommend going. You're very educational. It's interesting, too, I know that a Nobel Prize winner in biology several years back uh, made the adamant claim that he just totally denounced uh, as a global theory of evolution because of the cell. It's the same concept. Yes. You take one human cell and you blow it up to the size of New York City. It's incredibly, incredibly complex. Right. And at that size, and to assume that there's a capitalist, yeah. That basic thing is what brought me to believe in God. The heme molecule. And that's a relatively large molecule, but with an iron molecule in the middle of it. When I was sitting in organic chemistry studying that, I believed in a creator as soon as I saw that heme molecule. So there's no way that happens by chance. The professor says one electronic bond is different in this carbon carbon bonding around the heat molecule and we all die. Yeah, the big molecule with a ferrous carbon-carbon double device to have a scheme of it somewhere. Okay, so he holds all things to the word of his power. So including down to the molecular level to the macro level of the very outskirts of the universe, you have God holding all things together. And that Another evidence for the existence of God, for example, is called the anthropic principle. And what that means is that if you look at planet Earth and some of the factors in the ways that we are, where we are in relationship to the sun, some of the constants, like uh, the speed of light and these various things, there are dozens of factors that if they were all different, we wouldn't be able to live on Earth. So that's another argument for the existence of God is the anthropic principle that appears that God made this planet so that life could exist here. Yes. It's inconceivable when, at least from what I've read, to say, oh yeah, it's incredibly, incredibly improbable, but things just happen to click at this one point in time. But it's not one thing that clicks and then it all works. Right. Millions upon millions of tremendously, tremendously improbable Right. It's all occurring simultaneously, and you look at the probability of that. It's impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible, yeah. Chance does not create order, by the way. I think that uh, R.C. Sproul has a good video on that called Not a Chance. Chance is, is not a thing. It's just a way of describing the relationship between things. So since chance isn't a thing, it can't create anything. Okay, I'll hold all things to the word of his power. We have to look up a passage here that's a fantastic cross-reference to this. Uh, we were going this way. Linda, Colossians 1, 15 to 17. Colossians 1, 15 to 17. You might want to turn to that. It's a really uh, good cross-reference to this. Fifteen to 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers.
or authority. All things were created by him and for him. What about verse 10? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Yeah, in him all things hold together. Paul said to the Athenian philosophers, in him we live and breathe and have our being. So, our irony is the atheist who shakes his fist and blasts him to God to try to prove he doesn't exist can only exist because of God. The ones who hate God exist because God loves them and allows them to be. Even though they, they're blaspheming him, they're not, they don't, uh, even though they knew God, Paul says, they uh, do not acknowledge him as God or, or worship him. But they become vain in their speculations. Their foolish minds are darkened. Doesn't the opening of that first uh, fifteen kind of open the door for Christ as a created being? The firstborn? Uh, we're going to talk about that probably in whatever, however long it takes us to get to verse six, because firstborn is also in verse six. And but I'll give you a, it's okay to think about it ahead of time. Firstborn is a term of preeminence, not a term of chronological priority. Alright? Alright, there you go. Millions of people this morning are worshiping Creator God, and when I walk out of that building, if they die this day, they're going right to hell. That's true. They acknowledge the Creator God, they acknowledge all these great things about Him, but they'll go to hell. No better than the atheist that denies it. If you don't know, if you witness the one this morning, and they're bailing on the attributes of God, Christ is God, Creator of heaven and earth. From Genesis to Revelation, but they'll set foot in hell because they won't read, go through the appropriation God has made. As far as the gospel. It's like the guy told me, he gave me a scientist, the, other, the physicist can go to the top of the mountain, he's so prejudiced because he can only come to God through Christ, and you'll see God there and you'll come down and tell the biologist he doesn't exist. We can only bear witness to him by his power, by that spirit. It's, it's, uh, he gives us repentance, it's beyond us. You can believe everything about the Bible and still go to hell. That's true. You can have the Bible memorized and go to hell. It's saved by faith, not by knowledge. And as a matter of fact, the thing that's amazing to me is that some of these quote-unquote liberal scholars that really, really know the languages and know the Bible, you can read their essays and learn tons about the Bible. Their problem isn't that giving the wrong knowledge is that their faith is not in Christ. Yeah, so you could... Uh, Kittle's Theological Dictionary. I, my favorite example of this is Rudolf Boltman. Has anybody heard of Boltman? Carl, who's Boltman? Yeah, he, uh, what was he famous for? Anybody remember? He demythologized the Bible. He was the one who said there are no demons, there are no angels, there are no miracles. But the ancient people believed in myths, and so uh, Jesus accommodated them. Jesus didn't really believe in these things himself, but he accommodated the people around so they could understand him. So, Boltman demythologized the Bible. Well, if you go to Kittle's Theological Dictionary, which is the best one that's ever been published on the Greek language and the Greek words, and you look up the word faith, pistos, faith, the essay in there is written by Rudolf Boltman. And when you read it, it's brilliant. It's absolutely biblical. He can describe biblical faith as clearly as it can be described. Because it was his job to do so for that essay. And he didn't depart from what it says in 
Paul said this, John said this, Jesus said this, Moses said this, the Bible believes this, here's the way it says it. He doesn't happen to personally believe that, <laughs> but he can tell you the facts better than a lot of evangelicals could. Um, so when I read that, I, kind of, I was reading this essay on faith. And, Man, this is really good. Who wrote it? I got the end. Boldman. What? <laughs> How can Boldman know this? <laughs> well, it just goes to show it isn't knowledge. It's faith. It's believing in. Not just believing that, but believing in. So he's holding all things together. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is holding every molecule in the universe together? And, we, and that, we, if, that if he were, were to let go, it would disintegrate into utter chaos. Wow. I remember the first time I read that, and I thought about that heme molecule when I was in organic chemistry, when I became a believer through looking at a heme molecule. I became a Christian about three months later through meeting Jesus Christ, but at that point I became a theist. I believed in God because this doesn't hold together without him. Well, upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins. I told you there was a lot of stuff in this verse, didn't I? When he had made purification for sin, had made his heiress point in time into Greek. And so here we are getting a, a preview of a theme that's going to be developed more fully later in the book of Hebrews, and that is Jesus as the high priest. Only Jesus perfectly takes away sins once for all. So he is, he makes a sacrifice. says, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's an allusion uh, to, I believe, Psalm 110 and verse 1. Psalm 110 and verse 1. Brian, you want to look up Psalm 110? Read it for us. One of the most oft-quoted Messianic verses in the Old Testament that's used in the New is Psalm 110, verse 1. So you better know it. It's important. Yes. Yes. The Lord God says to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your adversaries your footstool. Your, uh, the Lord will send forth from Zion the scepter of your strength and rule them in the midst of your foes. Your people will offer themselves willingly in the day of your power, in the beauty of holiness and in holy array, out of the womb of the morning to you, your young men who are as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not revoke or change it. You are a priest forever, after the manner and order of Melchizedek. Okay, that's far enough. Good. Wow. That's, there's the book of Hebrews in the Old Testament. <laughs> Look at all of what it says about Messiah in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, well, there's two people here, right? Well, who's David's Lord? Remember Jesus quoted that to the Pharisees? He says, who was he speaking of? Who did Jesus call Lord? What was their answer? Anybody remember? They had no answer. They just left him. They, they, he was, they were stumped. David wrote this. And David said, the Lord said to my Lord, so both of these lords have to be, neither one could be David. Only the Messiah be the son of David and also be his Lord. Yeah, that was the question, right? How could, this, how could the son of David be Messiah and also be his Lord? They couldn't answer that. He stumped him. And so, 
the reason the early church quoted Psalm 110 verse once so often was that the Jewish critics of early Christianity were saying that Messiah doesn't die, Messiah rules. And so how can you say you have a Messiah who dies? And the answer the church gave is Psalm 110 verse 1. He does he is ruling in the midst of his enemies from the right hand of the Father. He bodily ascended into heaven, and he is ruling in heaven. Psalm 110 verse 1. So that was their answer. That's why it was quoted so often to the Jewish people in the first century. So you better remember that one. <laughs> Put a bookmark in Psalm 110. It also talks about the priest forever after the holy order of Melchizedek. So there's two allusions to Psalm 110 here in Hebrews 1.3. The priesthood, the making purifications, once for all, and the majesty and the rule sitting at the right hand of the Father. So the first sentence here in Hebrews 1.3 is about the person of Christ, his radiance, his character, his nature, and his power. And the second about his work, which is the making of purification of sins. And actually also upholding all things. So he's both the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Okay, I have some more cross-references. Pat, John 8 and verse 12, and Noel, John 1 and verse 14, John 1 and verse 14, and Edith, 1 Chronicles 29, 11. 1 Chronicles 29, 11. And when you have John 8 and verse 12, Pat, you can read that for us. When Jesus spoke again to his people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And so, and who was it? Whoever believes in me, is that what it said? Whoever follows me. Follows me. Okay, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. You can... In a sense that Jesus is the light of the world in a universal sense. He upholds it and reveals his nature through the creation. But on the other hand, if you don't believe in him and you don't follow him, you're still walking in darkness. The light is all around you, but you're living in darkness. That's how I felt when I met Jesus, that all of a sudden somebody turned the light on. Yes. Would, that, uh, would it be a wrong thing to, to, to make a statement that that I am the light of the world, like we are the light of the world, or is it better to become the salt? No, that I am the light of the world would only be Jesus in a unique sense. Like the light. Yeah. Remember, yeah, like we were talking earlier, yeah, we, we can be like the moon, but we can't be like the sun. Right. S-U-N-S-O-N. <laughs> I know that there's a there's a teacher out there saying you were supposed to say that over and over. It's sort of a Christian version of the New Age self-talk thing. I uh, When this guy that was dying of AIDS, there was a city council guy that died of AIDS a few years ago. And Brian? Yeah. And they, Channel 5 would do an expose on him to make him a, to be a hero. Yeah, so they wanted to make him a hero because he was dying of AIDS and because he was the first homosexual city council person. And, uh, yeah, doesn't that warm your heart? <laughs> well, anyhow, Channel 5 was doing an expose of the guy before he died, and so they went into his house and was following him around. And here's this guy, when he, the way
way he started every day was through these I am sayings. Because it's a new age thing. So he'd get up in the morning and say, he'd say, I am a lovable person. I am a wonderful man. I am a whatever. And just went, went through all these I am sayings to, and then he was ready for his day because he talked to himself about how great he is. And about that same time, I was reviewing a book written by a Christian author, and in the back of the book had a list of I am sayings for us to say. And I'm thinking, why do we need the new age in the church? What we really need to know is who Jesus is. I am a wretched sinner. He is the Lord. Steve says to her, well, I thought God already owned everything. 